Ready. We're ready. Okay. We're now starting. Okay. Um, I wanted to point something out today as, as we get started. Um, it's one of those things that continues to jump out at me, and that is that um, in the in the Bible, when you're trying to really understand a verse or what's going on in in the Old or New Testament, it really is about narrowing, narrowing, narrowing down and being able to see exactly what a word meant and why it is that the prophets said it a certain way. And so, for instance, remember that a, a Hebrew word may have like three consonants, but no vowels. So if you put one vowel in there, it changes the word, and then you take that vowel out and put another vowel in, now the word is completely different. So a lot of times when you're looking at words in Isaiah... Uh, or Jeremiah, you're looking at what the Hebrew consonant was, and I thought, well, you know, if we just change out that vowel, suddenly this is a much different word, and the verse means something completely different. So understanding the Bible is about actually drilling down and understanding these word plays that prophets love to do, especially Isaiah. The Book of Mormon, on the other hand, we've always talked about it being this uh, plain and simple, straightforward language, and it doesn't seem to have this complexity that you have sometimes in uh, like the Old Testament. Except that I, I continue to be amazed as I get ready for this, and it's just a reminder to me how complex the Book of Mormon is. But the complexity in the Book of Mormon is not about careful little word plays and different words that can be traded out for each other. The Book of Mormon's complexity is actually in pulling back and looking at it more from a distance and seeing why it is that Nephi's and Mormons and Moroni's and those guys, as they were editing, they would put stories together. They would stack instances together. And when you pull back and you look at it from a distance, you go, oh, that's what he's trying to say. Um, and and I've, I've talked about... And, and we'll talk about that probably more this, uh, this winter. But, uh, for instance, we have the, the wonderful story of King Benjamin. And then right next to this, this, all these stories of King Benjamin, we get the stories of King Noah. King Benjamin butts up against King Noah. And then we get the discussion from Mosiah saying, I think kings are not a good idea. We should have judges. Well, it's no accident that those stories, even though the story of King Benjamin is about a thousand years after Abinadi and King Noah. Chronologically, they are, they're out of order. But if you pull back and look at it, you're going to say that this was, Mormon was putting this together in a way that you see the, these kings good, bad, then on to, to judges. There was a reason why they did that. Well, Excuse me, you say Benjamin was a thousand years after? But no, not a thousand, about 150 years. After Noah. King Benjamin is about 150 years after King Noah. Yeah, even though they are uh, reversed in order chronologically in the Book of Mormon. Okay, so, so now we get to these wonderful, this is kind of the lead in to here come this, we're going to get these, these visions, and it's going to take up a big chunk of 1 Nephi. So we're going to get this wonderful experience that, that uh, uh, Father Lehi has with the Tree of Life. And he's going to go through that. And really a lot of the 
the tree of life experience for him is going to be focused a lot on the effect it has on his family. Where's Laman and Lemuel? Are they believing it? Are they not? And it's going to be against the backdrop of the tree. Now we're going to have this little bridge. There's a couple of chapters. There's eight, and then we're going to get nine and ten. There's, a, there's two chapters that form the bridge before Nephi starts his version of the vision. It's his vision version. Version vision. In eleven. And so this, bri- this is going to bridge this over. Come on in, Mama. Wendy's mom. Everybody say hi. Um, And he's going to start his vision, but his vision is going to be some of the same things, but it's going to be much more expounded, expounded and expanded. But I need you to look at the bridge between uh, 9 and 10 that get us into that. Now, so let's look first of all in 1 Nephi 10. Now, he's going to say, I proceed to give an account of these plates and my proceedings. Uh, It came to pass, my father made an end of speaking the words of his dream and exhorting them. Now listen, think about what we have in in 1 Nephi 8 and the the wonderful vision of the the tree. But look at what he's going to tell it. He spake unto them. He's going to pull his his, uh, family together. Look at what else he's about to describe. Uh, that the Jews should be destroyed. Uh, even the great city Jerusalem, many be captured, captured, carried away captive into Babylon. And by the way, this will happen before they even get on the boat to sail away. This captivity will come rolling in from uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, while they're on the peninsula, but they got out of Dodge literally just a couple of years ahead of this. Carried away captive into Babylon... According to their own due time, they should return again. Uh, how long were they? How long did it take to get back? Seventy years. That they would be carried away Babylon, and then they would actually get to come back. Okay, but they'll return again. Seventy years. Uh, yea, uh, six hundred years now from the time that my father left. This is still Lehi teaching his family. Look at what he's teaching them. Uh, a prophet would the Lord raise up. Among the Jews, a Messiah. Uh, now, I find this fascinating. And, and Lehi also spake concerning the prophets, how great a number had testified of these things concerning this Messiah of whom he had spoken, or this Redeemer of the world, and all mankind were lost. And all these prophets were preaching. Where is that? It's it's in the Old Testament, right? The Jews' understanding of a Messiah at the time that the Savior came to them based on the scriptures that they had in front of them suggested a Messiah that would redeem them militarily. That it was going to be this strong arm. It was nothing about a fall. It was nothing about a need for redemption. It was nothing about a Savior that would redeem them from their sins. That was all contained in the law of Moses and the way that they did that. Where is all of these, where's all of these great prophets who spoke specifically about a Redeemer that would atone for their sins? 
and redeem them from the fall. Yeah, pretty much the brass plates. But, but you wouldn't think that the, in all of Jerusalem, the only place that there might be a record of prophets who talked about the Redeemer might be sitting on the brass plates and, and Nephi and the boys took the only version. What does that tell you? They didn't value it. In fact, they didn't value it so much that they edited it, that they removed it. This would have been the Deuteronomists that are going through and removing stuff that doesn't fit with the narrative that they're trying to say. From a well-intentioned standpoint, they were evil in this. They just believed that they're going to double down on making sure that people live the law of Moses by removing any other visions and any other possibilities except for the fact that you have to follow the law of Moses. Do it strictly. Yeah. Yeah, now the family history, and, and, and it's funny because we knew that they also needed the family history. It's just amazing how much more was contained in this record, including all of these prophets that were preaching. And we're going to find that the family history actually weaves itself into the history they were about to show. Okay, yeah. Um, I think it's um, Skousen in um, Days of the Living Christ, that series of books. He says that they took out everything um, that, that said they would kill Jesus Christ. Yeah. Except for Isaiah because they didn't understand Isaiah. Yeah, see, Isaiah was able to slide in <laughs> under the uh, thing. That's why he wrote in code. Because, because, in fact, if you go to, if you pull out the, the, the one that we refer to the most in Isaiah that would get the closest to what Lehi was teaching is where in Isaiah? Hallelujah. Isaiah 53. The suffering servant in Isaiah 53, where he's going to talk about, you know, that he will be, he's not going to be very uh, comely, and they're going to, and he will see a seed, and he will redeem all that. If you go to a to the Jews in Jerusalem today and you say, what, what about Isaiah 53? This seems to be talking about the Savior. How, how do they interpret that? Because it seems like it would be unmissable, right? There it is. You can't miss this. Who would the Jews say is Isaiah 53? Israel. Israel and the Jews are the suffering servant. They're the ones that have been kind of drag through all this, okay? All right. So, so uh, Lehi's going to teach them that all mankind were lost. And then, and I, find this, and I find this fascinating. Here's one of these little things that keeps happening. Every time you're going to find in the Book of Mormon that you'll have a prophet talking about the Savior, he's also going to talk about another prophet. No matter whether it's Samuel the Lamanite or whether it's Alma or anybody's going to talk about the Savior, they're always going to talk about a prophet who should come before the Messiah. Verse 8, and they should come forth and cry in the wilderness and prepare ye the way of the Lord and make his path straight. And my father said he should baptize in Bethabara beyond Jordan, that he should baptize with water, that he should baptize the Messiah with water. They never pass up the, the opportunity to talk about John the Baptist. And I think sometimes John the Baptist almost gets a little footnote. The Savior came. Oh yeah, there was John the Baptist. 
But look at how much weight the prophets of the past put on John the Baptist. Why? Why was John the Baptist so critical? Enough that Lehi, 600 years before that, would even be talking about it and tell specifically where the baptism would take place. Yeah, he was going to tell them the truth. Well, John the Baptist was another witness of Christ. He was another witness of Christ. He was. Baptism was critical. You're right. Uh, And that's why people like the Essenes out in the Dead Sea area, the Dead Sea Scrolls, for whom baptism and ritual washings were more important, they thought had been left out. They were pushing back against the Deuteronomists, by the way. I believe that one of the reasons that this is here, because we're going to talk in a few minutes about signs, that whenever the Lord is going to give information, we're going to believe it, we're going to have a desire to know, we're going to believe it, and then you'll see signs that point out that you were right. And signs are going to be an important thing. We'll talk about this. Because this is so specific about where and how it would be assigned to believers. Signs don't convert unbelievers, but they are strengthened to those that do believe. Okay? All right. I have a comment, kind of a backup comment. Yeah. Uh, The Savior actually will militarily save the Jews at the second coming, so they were halfway right. Yeah, they had some... They just took out the other parts. Right. The the Jews had had the... uh, the part where it would physically he would redeem Israel, but all of the stuff about spiritually redeeming mm-hmm. that we find in Isaiah and we're going to find here, you're right. That's the stuff that was edited out. And one of the reasons why I guess I go to lengths to talk about this, I just need you to see how heavily edited the Old Testament was. So that when sometimes people struggle with the concept of God and belief in God and they're taking a look at the Old Testament they're going, I can't believe that God would do this or that or this or that. Well, I get it. Because there are things in the Old Testament that are symbolic in nature, but we're reading a heavily edited book. Mm-hmm. So I get that, that a lot of things are just not going to make sense to us. And that they, and they were, ended up being a stumbling block to so many others. Okay? Now, he, but he's going to go on. Look at verse 12. Yea, even my father spake concerning the Gentiles, concerning the house of Israel, that they should be compared unto what? An olive tree. Oh. Whose branches should be broken off and scattered on the face of the earth? Do we have this one? Where's this one? Jacob 5, right? So where did Jacob, think about Jacob in his own record, giving us this wonderful allegory of the olive tree, uh, in Jacob 5, where did Jacob first hear about this? Wow. He heard it from his dad. In the brass plate. Because he, dad was teaching it from the brass plate. That's where Jacob first got it. Uh, should be compared to an olive tree. They're going to be scattered. Uh, they're going to be sent to a land of promise. Uh, we got 14. And the house of Israel should be scattered together. Uh, or finally to receive the fullness of the gospel, the natural branches, the remnants. He, they, he read to them the, the allegory of the olive tree. Isn't that cool? 
So, now, after this manner did my father speak unto the brethren and many more things, I do not write in this book. I have written as many as were expedient in mine other book. Hi. The stuff we don't have. <laughs> Thank you, Lucy Harris. Um, all these things in which I have spoken were done as my father dwelt in a tent in the valley of Lemuel. Now, it's like I suddenly, I suddenly got this. Um, I want you to see this. It was just kind of interesting to me. So really what we get is this valley of Lemuel. And then you can say, oh, but there's also a river that runs through it. Or valley of Laman. River of Lemuel. There's a river. And then there's going to be a tent. And out in front of the tent is an altar. What is that? What had Lehi set up in the wilderness? A temple. Because remember, they would come back and they would sacrifice. They, they would have uh, they uh, do uh, thanks uh, sacrifices when the boys came back. When Ishmael got back, they kept having these sacrifices. It's part of what drove Laman and Lemuel nuts. You were supposed to be doing this outside the temple. Lehi created a temple. Because we talked last time about the three parts of the temple, right? The the world, and then ins, and then inside the world is this holy place, and inside the holy place was a holy of holies. It's the three part temple, always, or they call the tripart temple. <clears throat> Lehi created that. You have the valley of Lem, of Laman, that is the world, and then inside the then you're going you're to do these sacrifices. You're going to go inside the tent. His temple tent. And inside there, they're going to be taught about the Savior and about the fall and about the resurrection and all of that. That's a temple tent. Now, by the way, this ought to, this ought to also have some echoes to the children of Israel because remember, the children of Israel are going to be out wandering around in the wilderness, the world. And then where are they going to go to be able to understand more about the Savior? Inside a tent. There's going to be sacrifices outside the tent. Go inside the tent. There's the temple. And that's what Lehi created for his family as they wandered in the wilderness. He created a temple. Isn't that cool? By the way, if we if we jump one more, does that, this ever happen in the uh, in any other place in the Book of Mormon? I know we're probably almost going a year ahead now to what we're going to be talking about. Think about when the Savior comes to the Nephites, and He's going to come down and He's going to stand in their midst. What does He surround Himself with? Kids. We have this moment where there's going to be kids. He's going to stand in the middle. The most, clean, the most cleansed of all people, the kids are going to stand around him. Outside of that is going to be the angels who stand kind of as sentinels. And outside of that is going to be everybody else. They're in that holy place. And the, him and the kids are here. And he's going to pray. And it's going to be like things we can't talk about. It's so powerful. 
And then, and then I'm always amazed by this. Outside in the world somewhere, there were people living 20 and 30 and 40 miles away who didn't make it to the temple, uh, there for Passover, and they're sitting at home having dinner. And then people are going to go all night after spending time with the Savior and go and say, you can't believe what we just did yesterday. Really? What? No. Jesus came to the temple. Really? Where were you? Well, it was a long ways. We figured this Passover, we'd like, it's like state conference. It's a day off. (laughs) So rather than go, we'll just hang out. No, it was Jesus and there were angels and he came down and he blessed the kids. Your kids didn't get blessed because you didn't bring them to Passover. Really? We've got to travel all night. He says, come back tomorrow. Really? Yeah, come. That's the world. The world misses out even on things that are so close. Does that make sense? Okay. Comments on that? I just need, I need you to see, if you look at it, the complexity in the Book of Mormon is there. That's why I just start laughing out loud sometimes when people say, well, I'm just not sure I believe that Mormon stuff, so I think Joseph Smith just wrote this. <laughs> Anybody that believes that just has never really studied how complex and multi-layered the the Book of Mormon is. Um, All right. Now, let let me take this one step forward. Because now here in... in, uh, This is going to be kind of the crux of what I think we need to be looking at in these chapters. And this, and this is where it really applies to us. This is so critical to what we do on a day-to-day basis. Ahead of this great vision that starts in 1 Nephi 11 and 12 and 13 and 14, we're going to get a thesis statement from Nephi. And he's going to tell you exactly what he hopes you will learn from the vision. He's going to set it up. And this is going to jump right out at you if you just look at it. But it's so powerful that he's going to use um, uh, Hebraic parallelism to do it. He will write it in poetry. Okay? Watch what he does here. And if you want to follow along, uh, start with uh, verse 17. In chapter 10? In chapter 10, yeah. I, Nephi, he's going to say was desirous also that I might see and hear and know of these things. Why? He just a really curious dude. He just really wants to know this stuff just because he likes to study deep stuff. He just heard his father Lehi talking about all this incredible stuff. All this amazing stuff. And then in the middle of all of this, He's going to say, I want to also hear it and see it and experience it. Why? (coughs) Just because he likes his dad. Just because it would be cool. So he can understand what? What his father saw. The meanings behind what his father saw. Sure. And so if he understood what his father had seen and why, what what would that lead him to do? What? Of? Yes. Exactly. 
In other words, to understand this, to understand the mysteries of God, is to understand God. It was critical that he understand this to understand how God works. Remember, we go back to 1 Nephi 2 when he's saying, the reason that Laman and Lemuel rebelled was, why? They knew not that God who had created them. How, are, how was Nephi going to know that God who had created them? He had to know the mysteries. He had to know how God works. So, I, Nephi, was desirous that I might see and hear and know these things. And how would that happen? By the power of the Holy Ghost. And then he's going to give you a definition. If somebody wants to know what exactly is the purpose of the Holy Ghost, will you bear witness of the Savior? Yeah, we're going to really see that. We're about to see that in spades in, in 1 Nephi 11. But look at, look at how Nephi is describing and defining the Holy Ghost. Who will be his guide in the first part of this vision. The Holy Ghost, which is what? A gift of God unto who? Yeah, those who diligently seek God. That is a gift. And it's a gift of God that will help you come to know Him. I still believe that those who struggle with faith, struggles and all that... Off time, it's just one of those things they do not know that God very well that created them. They don't know how He works. Well, I think Nephi also served as a second witness, and because Laman and Lemuel were doubting, and, and he could say, Well, I saw what Nephi saw. Right. In fact, and so actually, what we're going to get in first and second Nephi is three witnesses to the Savior, right? We're going to get Lehi, Nephi, and Isaiah. And then we'll add a, a fourth one with Jacob when we get into Jacob. But certainly we'll get these three witnesses. So by the power of the Holy Ghost, which is the gift of God unto all those who diligently seek Him. As well in times of old, as in time He should manifest Himself unto the children of man. I think this is a direct message to the Deuteronomists who believe that visions have ceased, there are no more angels, it's just, you just study the law, you're going to be um, uh, exalted by the law and he's going to say, wait a minute there were prophets Enoch, Abraham all the, Joseph who had all of these visions in times past who by the power of the Holy Ghost came to know him as well as in times of old, as in the time he should manifest himself unto the children of men. They will know him as well in a vision. Enoch knew him as well as in a vision, as did Peter, James, and John knew him when he was actually manifesting himself. It's that real. Does that make sense? Now he's going he's to put a bow on it. He's going to say, and... Verse 18, he is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. I mean, don't we want to kind of say this sometimes to our evangelical friends? God spoke to the heavens, to prophets. Prophets wrote down the words of God because it was so critical to them to know how to live. That's what He did in the past. How about now? Well, no, we only have the Bible, and anything outside the Bible would be a heresy. 
And we're saying, no, he's the same God. He does it. He always works the same way. Can I say to you also, as, as a convert uh, from Catholicism, that we would never encourage to have a personal relationship with Heavenly Father, or even to understand what the Holy Ghost really was. All we were told was to say our Heavenly Mary is in our heart. Yeah. And never did we even configure. I don't ever remember this as a child ever configure a personal prayer. Yeah, that was part of what drove Luther nuts, right? Luther says that needs to be a personal a personal relationship more, and and so we're going to push back against the priests. And I didn't even understand, even as a member of the church, that I had the right to call on the Holy Ghost to help me. It took yeah. a reminder through blessings that I wasn't doing. Yeah, that's one of the reasons we weren't going to have the Bible in English for so many yeah. years because that that would give you access. I only have the interpretation of the gospel through the priest in the homily. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. I just realized this weekend that not everybody believes that. I thought everybody believed that, you know, that you're supposed to have that personal relationship with God. Yeah, it just makes sense, doesn't it? I just didn't realize that. I just realized I'm 47 years old, and I just realized that this weekend. Yeah, and what a a shame that is. I felt so amazed and ashamed. It was kind of like a huge awakening because I was like, I can't believe that everybody does it. Yeah, it would make sense, wouldn't that's it? That's what I base my whole sure. Life Absolutely, on, you know, and my decision making, everything. I mean, my whole being is. Well, that. and you and Nephi would be on the same page because <laughs> he's going. Wait a minute! I found out my father had a vision, uh, but I got a chance to find out for myself and see exactly what he saw. In fact, Joseph Smith will say this: that God intends to show. To every saint, everything that he's shown to the prophets, if we'll just put ourselves in a position to see it. I think it's so interesting that uh, when Nephi was giving his account of the vision, that he said, uh, and my father was so busy looking at these other things that he didn't he missed. know this going on. Yeah, yeah. Father was a little distracted. I think father was a little ADD, you know, or, or obsessive. He's like, he's focused on, look at the tree. No, there's wa- there's dirty water here. No, but the tree is so beautiful. Okay, I, yeah, it's a very human element between him and his dad. Okay. Actually, you have two people seeing the same vision. That I see two different things. They had different needs. Yeah, and, and different interpretations as well. But he's going to, he wants you to know he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the way is prepared. Now, being a true Hebrew, though, to make sure that you really get this in Hebraic poetry, you're going to say something, and then what will you do? Say it again. Say it again. You repeat it. Sometimes it's, it's you're going to repeat it back to front, so it goes A, B, C, C, B, A. This is one of those A, B, C, A, B, C. He's just going to repeat it in different words because he needs you to get this core. And, and this middle part here is the core of the, the, the thing because parallelism in Hebrew leads you to a certain point and that's the main message. In this case, he's going to go ABC, boom, ABC, boom, and he'll hit it again. Before, all before he shows you 1 Nephi 11 in his vision. That's why it's his thesis statement. Okay, so here it comes again. In case you miss this, let's go, let's go again. Now, verse eight, nineteen. For he, oh, but it's different this time. For he that diligently seeketh shall see and hear and know. 
the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto them. What did he just do? It's subtle. I, Nephi, did it. Then in the second verse, same messages, he's going to say, you can do it. Anybody can do this. I did it. You can do this. That's, that's going to be his message going into the vision. Dad did it. I did it. And you can do it. Sounds like Iron Man, doesn't it? Dad did it. It worked out well for him. That's the way we're doing it. Anyway. I hate it when I start quoting from Marvel movies and I don't necessarily want to do it. He that diligently seeketh shall find, and the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto them. And you know what the next line is going to be, right? Because it's parallel. The next line is going to be, by the power of the Holy Ghost. He's just following the thing. Okay? And then, and then he's going to change it just a little bit. As well in these times, Laman and Lemuel. As well as in these times. Dad's visions didn't make him a false prophet. It meant that he was a prophet the same as Joseph and Abraham and Enoch. As well in these times. The Deuteronomists on this point are wrong. A visionary man doesn't make him a false prophet. It makes him a prophet. As well in these times as in times of old. And as well in times of old as in times to come. It's coming and you can have the same visions. And then you know what would come next. Because he really wants to drive this point home. Wherefore, the course of the Lord is one eternal round. He is the same God. And once you understand His patterns, you'll understand how He works. Understand His patterns and you can almost predict what prophets will do and what they will say. And to not understand God's patterns is to not understand when He does what He does. Okay? Alright. Is that pretty good on the, on the thesis statement? Okay, so that, that's all the set. This is all setting us up to make sure then we're able to now get to. Oh, oh, now look how he is this. Therefore, remember, oh man. Remember, God is the same. I just told you twice. I tried to do it. Well, now remember. Okay, so, so now let's go to. Uh, 1 Nephi 11, 1. By the way, I, I really, I like, I like this picture. I thought this was kind of cool. This is inside the temple tent. This is going to be Lehi teaching his family these things, so he wants them to know. I, I like this picture. Okay, now... What you're going to see here is Nephi's pattern for getting answers to the mysteries. So he just told you how critical it is. He's told you that it's possible. He even told you how it would happen. It would come by the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now he's going to do. He's going to lay it out for you, and he's going to see. He's going to show you exactly how this works. For it came to pass that after I had desired to know the things that my father had seen, and here comes two, and what? 
believing that the Lord was able to make them known unto me. We'll talk a lot more about that in a second. But I'm going to desire, then I'm going to believe, then I'm going to ponder. And I was pondering in my heart, I was caught away in the Spirit of the Lord. By the way, this idea of pondering, uh, th- those who studied anything about church history, we have another vision that starts out almost exactly like this. <laughs> and that would be what? One, section 138. Joseph F. Smith. Well, He'd been reading in the Bible and it says that he was pondering and the eyes of his understanding were open and then this opens up to him. Uh, I, I've included this, this quote from Joseph Smith on top of this. He says, the things of God are of deep import and time and experience and careful and ponderous and solemn thoughts can only find them out. Now, if pondering is so important, how would Satan make sure we don't ponder? Keep us too busy. Keep us busy and... Voices and noise. It's about noise. And, and, and raise the level of uh, noise so that you don't get a chance to, to hear quiet and peaceful so that you can ponder. And so it's easy to say, do you take time to ponder? And then ponderize. <laughs> so you're going to ponder and then memorize so that you have something to ponder about. Yeah. Not just noise, but so much digital access that there's always something ADD to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. We have to have those moments when we can just ponder and, and not only just ponder, think about the laundry. <laughs> How am I going to get them all in there at the same time? <laughs> I'm going to ponder about how how's the most efficient way to put all the dishes in the dishwasher all at the same time to reduce the amount of loads that you actually have to do. Boy, we can ponder about minutiae, can't we? But where are we going to ponder about the things of... Go back to his quote. The things of God are of deep import and time and experience and careful and ponderous and solemn thoughts can only find them out. I believe, for instance, shouldn't we be able to do that when we do the scriptures, when we're reading the scriptures? Isn't that a great time to ponder? Except if we are trying to say, you know what, I'm going to make sure that I read the scriptures 15 minutes every single day, and I have to get it done, and I'm really hurried, so I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to hurry and read the Book of Mormon so that I can then get on and do everything else. And you know what? I'm not getting a whole lot out of the Book of Mormon because I was just read because I got to get done 15 minutes, and then it's like, oh my gosh, here comes Isaiah. <laughs> okay, and then I you know, finally got into Messiah. So if I'm only going to read for 15 minutes, it's going to be, make some sense. Okay, so that I can now get on and do the laundry. Where's our room in pondering for that? 
What if that 15 minutes consists of read one verse? Read one line and think during the rest. So we slow down, we take a big deep breath, and we allow this. Uh, A lot of times, I'll just mention this. I've got, uh, in working with those that have addictions, uh, those that have been able to stay clean from their addictions the longest and have the longest periods of sobriety often, often have one thing in common. And, I, and I, I hear what they do, and I watch the process, and, and they seem to have one thing in common to be able to maintain long reigns of sobriety. They have what, what 12-step programs have called forever the morning devotional. And the morning devotional is simply to read, to get up in the morning and read something that helps them recognize the struggle they have with their addictions, and then take time to think about it. And then they pray before they start their day. It usually takes 15 to 20 minutes. What do they pray for? Help me to be clean today. I don't care about tomorrow. I don't care about next week. All I need to do is get through today. They wake up the next morning. Heavenly Father, I made it. I made it since last. So here's the next thing I read. Help me stay clean today. And it gets broken down into very simple steps. I try and do that with my clients where we're just trying to say, I don't care about how long you've been sober. I just need you to know you can do it today. How are you going to get through today? Less pondering. Yeah. I'm going back a little bit to what you said in the state conference. One of the speakers talked about how in Ephesians 2.2, um, he talks about the prince of the power of the air, and he's meaning Satan. And then he compared that that our devices, oh, the the signals come through the air. They do. Although it is fascinating, I, I was laughing with Cindy the other day because I suddenly realized we're, these days we're talking about taking all of these great uh, things that I've got. I'm backing up all of my stuff on my computer on my devices, and and where am I putting it? In the cloud. Woohoo! <laughs> you know, the, the angels have been telling this for, this for years. You know, you're, actually, you're going to write down the angels may quote from it, and, and if you're going to write in your journal stuff, where's that going to be recorded? In the cloud. <laughs> it's all recorded in heaven. And it's just like, like our IT people said, ah, how about we do it in the cloud? Well, that's good. That's where the angels are. <laughs> nice. I love how that works. Yeah, it is. Our experiences, who we are. Yeah. Okay. So, here, here we go. Uh, I desired... Uh, and the Spirit said unto me... And let me just have you see the pattern. Because often, often, often... Again, it's just... I can't emphasize enough. It's about patterns. And, and when you see the pattern, you understand how God works. The Spirit said unto me... Oh, wait. Stop here. Uh, Because we need to clarify this up. Uh, As I sat pondering in my heart, I was caught away in the Spirit of the Lord to a high mountain I'd never seen before. And the Spirit said unto me... uh, Who's he talking to? Who's the Spirit here? (laughs) 
Who's his, who's his, who's his uh, guide here at the first part? And then the guide is going to change in just a second. But the guide for the first couple of things. Okay. I think you're right. But however, this particular thing in the church, it's amazing the more I study, the more I saw, it's amazing, and it's not, a big, it's not a big doctrinal difference, it's just amazing how many prophets and apostles lined up on each side of this issue. Because some are going to say this is the Holy Ghost we're looking at, and some are going to say this is Jesus Christ, the pre-mortal Jesus Christ. There are enough people saying... Uh, no, I think this is just like the brother of Jared, and this is the pre-mortal Jesus. And then on the other side, I've got people like uh, George Buchanan and Harold B. Lee and others said, no, this is the, this is the Holy Ghost in, in some kind of form here. And, and it makes sense to me that it would be the Holy Ghost uh, because we've just seen in his thesis statement, Nephi said, you're going to know these things How? By the power of the Holy Ghost. Then he's going to get, I believe, he gets a, a, uh, a vision with the initial guide being the Holy Ghost. It doesn't say he saw anything. Right. It just says the Spirit sent Exactly right. And because he's going to say, and I was caught away in the Spirit. That feels more like that he was kind of enveloped in that. I, I think that's right. Okay. Uh, so this spirit's going to be this guy. And by the way, the, one of the chief responsibilities of the Holy Ghost is to do what? Testify. testify of the Savior. And he's about to testify and give Nephi this vision exactly of the Savior. So it's it, right in, in the Holy Ghost responsibility. Okay? All right. So now let me do this. We'll, we'll back up just a bit. Because the Spirit is going to walk him through these things and, and I want you to take this pattern and plop it into your lives as a way of knowing truth, knowing the mysteries. So here come the questions of the Spirit and, and you can follow along in 11 if you want to see how this lines up. The first question of the Spirit to him is what? What desirest thou? What do you want? What desirest thou? So the, the first goal, and if we're going to understand God, is that we have to desire. We really, we really want it. You ever had those times when you just sort of want something, and then, and then I love this word, desiring. What does that sound like? Yearning, being drawn to it. You want it not just a little bit, but we talk about wanting something with our whole heart. We just desire, we just ache for that. We just really want something. Remember when, you, when Christmas would get close when you were little? <laughs> and you knew exactly what you wanted, and you didn't just want it a little, you wanted it a lot. <laughs> I've got, a, I've got a little grandson that for good or bad or ill, what he's really wanted was an Xbox. And he spent the last six months 
carefully working and raising money and and all that. And then on our uh, and then we went to his birthday party on uh, on Saturday. And and we have this little tradition with some of our grandkids now that uh, when when Grandpa goes out to eat, like he's going to get fast food and stuff, he's got a change drawer in his car. And that cash thing can get kind of full. So the deal with the grandkids is that for their birthday, they, they get to go out to Grandpa's car and they can have all the money they can find between the seats. <laughs> and, uh, and Grandma actually helped restock it a little bit because it wasn't as much because I got cleaned out pretty good from the last birthday. So we dumped like $20 worth of nickels and dimes and quarters and stuff into this thing. And so we take him out to the, the car on Saturday morning and he said, you're going to, and we gave him a little paper sack. You get to have for your birthday any money that you can find between the seats and grandpa's car. So he's looking around, then he opens that up, and, and I'm on the outside looking in, and, he, and he's leaning over across the driver's seat, and his tail just starts wagging. <laughs> Just so pumped, he's just like putting money and money. But there's like a hundred dollars here. Oh, he's just loading this thing up, and he's going to need a truck to carry this bag around and all this. And he's just and and I'm going to be able to get my Xbox. You know, he's just so thrilled. He doesn't know that he's it's already been bought for him, and he's not going to have to use his money. But I think there is that moment where we're just we just desire to know. And do our tails wag when we're reading the script because we want to find this stuff out. Well, to me, that's like becoming like a little child is when... Okay. But how many of you on Saturday morning, just before General Conference were starting, were kind of going... <laughs> oh, yeah. Or the, the, the next speaker will be uh, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. <gasps> <laughs> we just we want to know we want to be taught teach us we're getting okay I think that's the desiring level that we're trying to get to so the Lord is going to say to Nephi what do you desire well I want to see the things my father saw and, I'm, I'm, and his tail is just whack I want to know I really want to know this stuff now this, the spirit then is going to ask him a second question which is yeah. Believest thou? Do you believe this? Well, that's a tough one, isn't it? You desire it. Do you believe that you'll see it? Do you believe that you'll get it? How many times do we, we, we desire that we would know the truth, but we don't necessarily believe that God will tell us? God tells other people. He just doesn't tell me. Why? Why would we think that? That's because God answers their prayers. He just doesn't answer my prayers. God seems to step up and bless other people. He doesn't bless me. Why would I believe? Well, do we know do we know people like this? We ever had this happen in our life? I was just listening this morning to the talk given in conference by Elder James 
Yeah. Yeah. He shared his own Sure. Uh, we're going to get to the end of this, and and Nephi's going to find Laman and Lemuel kind of still buzzing about this whole thing, and he's going to say, "What do you think?" And they're going to say, "We don't know what we don't know what he's talking about. We don't." And he said, "Have you prayed about it?" And they're going to say, we do not understand, partly because we do not believe that he maketh answers known. I don't believe it. I don't believe that he may, dad may get it, but I don't believe that we're going to get it. Could this be a two layered question? Not just a do you believe that you can also see it, but do you actually believe it's true? Yeah, I do. I do. It's not just the fact that it's there, but it's also, do you believe he even saw it? Laman and Lemuel aren't. They're still believing that prophets don't get these kind of things anymore. Those days are done. I think sometimes we're just in too big of a hurry. We, we think we, we want it, but we're kind of like... Oh. We're not willing to sacrifice yeah, to put oh, the work into it. Later on. Oh. I don't need it right now. I'm in a hurry. Yeah. Like yeah. You, you want to know, but you're not sure you really want to know. I am, I am amazed, though, how often in my office I have people say... Other people in the ward get answers, and they, I know because I, they have wonderful families and kids that don't fall away, and they have believing husbands, and they don't have depression, and they don't, they don't you know, they, their, their prayers have been answered, and I, my prayers have not been answered. I may believe that he may do it for somebody else. I do not believe he does it for me. <coughs> Yeah. And I didn't have a good father figure. So it was trust. And if you've had that experience where you're not sure that God's going to be there for you, I am going to have to do it on my own. because. And then, and then we're going to sit in testimony meeting. People are going to say, I got that answer. And you're going to go, yeah, but I didn't. He loves them more than he loves me. Well, I was also thinking... <coughs> Nephi, I mean, it's like somebody goes on uh, vacation and it's really awesome and they're telling us about yeah. it. And we want to go there too because it sounds really awesome. I think that's part of Nephi's desire is to share this amazing thing that his father saw. I watch my da- the joy in my dad's face when dad is experiencing this, the tree and everything he saw and everything. And I want that. Now, do you believe you can get it? Do you believe you're worthy of it? Do you believe that that's how God works? Yeah. Yeah. Right. To have to believe. At least for a while, that that will. Sometimes I believe that that one is a kind of an initial gift. This is the one that keeps us going because ultimately we have to have our own testimonies. But sometimes in our initial stages, 
there'll be a long time that we walk on that gift to believe in somebody else's until it's happened. To, for salvation? No. I, I think ultimately we have to know ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so um, my understanding is if your faith is strong enough, yeah. you will always believe. That's correct. So um, if you're talking about the truth, the truth will always reveal itself. It never needs to be explained. I think that's generally true, generally. except for the fact that when we have, when Satan starts whispering in our ear and says, we should know, I've always believed, but then bad things start happening to me and I get shook a little bit. Or I prayed for one thing and then something else happened. What if your faith doesn't shake but everything else does? <laughs> then I think you have a wonderful gift. I think some people have that gift. Yeah. Yeah. To everyone of Christ, we have the gift to be able to believe on their testimony. Um, that that doesn't mean that you know that, that we don't eventually have our own okay. testimony, but they've been given that job to bear witness so that we can see. What you got? This discussion is exactly what Nephi wanted. This discussion he wanted you to have, because that's what the, this chapter has less to do with the tree of life and more to do with knowing and coming to know. This is the discussion that should be sparked by this chapter, because he's going to walk you through. You've got to desire. You've got to believe. And then what's the next one that the, the angel's going to ask him? Or the, the spirit will? Look! Look! See the signs. Look! There is a pattern here. Desire, believe, and then look. And when you look, you will see the tender mercies of God all around you. You will see Him at work. Look. It's interesting that when oftentimes we talk about those that struggle, they are the blind who will not see. They don't see it, and it's right in front of them. Yeah. It is an action word. Don't just sit there and wait for it. Yeah. It's like a seek and ye shall find kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, because you're watching what they do. I think an awful lot of people join the church because they look at you. They look at the missionaries. They look at what the church is doing and going, I desire to have that for my family. I may not have a testimony yet, but what I see, I desire. I want to be that. So, now, he's gonna, Nephi is going to show you how this works. And this is actually going to dovetail... You almost have to look at 1 Nephi 11, and you're gonna, I want you, there's another chapter in the Book of Mormon. Poof, and if you'll put it right next to this one, the two will work together to teach you how to know. And you're, and, and you're going to see it here. Because he's going to talk about what desirest thou. Think about 
we have in the in Alma we have another chapter that talks about how you come to know truth. And that is Alma 32, right? If we go back, look at Alma 32:27. If you if even if you can no more than desire to believe, let this desire do what? Work work in you. You get that sense? It's like, because we're talking about that in Alma 32, is talking about taking the Word as a seed. It's It's not faith. It's the Word that is planted. And we don't plant it. He does. That Word is planted in us and He says, you have to desire and if you'll do that, it will do something. It'll work. It's, it's active. It, 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 it begins to move. Uh, uh, let that desire work in you until you can believe. So desire comes first and then belief. You can believe in a manner that you can give place for a portion of my word so that you can look. You can see it. Okay? These two chapters, I think... Uh, really kind of go hand in hand. And we're going to see it uh, more in just a second. Uh, And if you'll... And he's going to say, if you desire, and then you believe, and then you're going to look, now he says, and and verse 7, after the the, the Spirit is going to kind of bear witness here, Blessed art thou, Nephi, because thou believest, Therefore thou shalt behold the things thou hast desired, and behold this thing, the vision of the tree, this thing shall be for you as a sign. Signs follow. Signs show up. We can look and see a sign. There are signs of the time that we know are coming, but it's just a reminder. It it reinforces us. Okay, Uh, That's what signs are. This thing shall be for thee uh, as a sign. Now, it came to pass that the Spirit said unto me, Look! And I looked and beheld a tree, and it was like unto the tree which my father had seen. It's, it's by the way, I don't know if you can see this. It's, this is one of the reasons why I, I always wear a tree of life symbol uh, on, a, on a necklace. This is kind of my I, I, tree of life. Cindy has the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's, that's the woman's tree. She's the one that's got the knowledge. We're the one that's got the life thing here. And the two trees kind of come together. <laughs> Story for another time. However, uh, what desirest thou? Um, he's going to say, oh, verse 8. Came to pass the Spirit said unto me, Look, and I looked, and I beheld a tree, and it was like unto the tree which my father saw. And then look at the description of this. The beauty thereof was far beyond, yea, exceeding all beauty, and the whiteness thereof... Uh, thereof was exceeding the whiteness of driven snow, this cleanliness, this pure. That's why uh, Mary is going to be described in a second as white. That's not a matter of her being Caucasian. It's a matter of cleanliness and purity. Okay? Um, So he's going to see the tree. What desirest thou? He says to know the interpretation. Um, And... Verse 12, oh, and the Spirit is in the... Nevertheless, I knew it was 
the Spirit of the Lord. He was in the form of a man, so he, he saw something there. Uh, and it was the Spirit of the Lord, he spake unto me as a man speaketh to another. And he said, look, and then he goes. Then, then the, the, uh, the tour guide is going to change here. The Spirit will be here for the first part. And then when the vision starts, and it's going to be a vision of the world and the, and the promised land and His people and America and Columbus and on and on and on, the, the tour guide is going to be this angel that's going to come. Uh, now, my, my, I have my own little speculation about this. Uh, because the, this uh, verse 14 it came to pass that the heavens opened an angel came down what beholdest thou then he's going to be off and he's going to start showing him the vision we talked last time about the fact that there was um, the, the, the vision with Lehi starts with a man in a white robe then we're going to get the vision. Then we're going to get Nephi's vision. And right at the end of Nephi's vision, there's going to be another man in a white robe. And we talked last time that that man at the end of Nephi's vision is one of the apostles whose job it was to be able to reveal the entire vision that that person was going to be John the Revelator. That seems to be his calling. This vision seems to be John's responsibility. And we, and we speculated about the possibility that wouldn't it be interesting if the man in the white robe in Lehi in, in 1 Nephi 8 would be the man in the white robe would be the same man as the man in the white robe at the end of Nephi's. That that would make sense. That it, would, it may possibly be John the Revelator all the way through. Does that, does that make does that over the top speculation? Kind of makes some sense that the Lord delegates keys and responsibilities to people. So let me give you one more here, just to think about this. <laughs> so here comes this angel that's going to... Verse 14, I saw the heavens open. An angel comes down and stands before him. And this angel's going to now lead him through this entire vision. If this were John also, the revelator, this is his calling, to reveal this vision. <clears throat> Think about what comes next here. Angel comes, he says, Look, and I beheld the city of Nazareth, and I beheld a virgin, and the angel came down. What do you see a virgin? Most beautiful and fair above all other virgins. And they know virgins, he's going to talk about the condescension of God, but he's going to talk about this beautiful, pure woman that will be the mother of God. Now, let me jump ahead to one other scene that I think ties some of this together and why I believe that this may indeed be John the Revelator. It's the Savior on the cross. And he looks down from the cross and who does he see? His mother. And he loves her and he can see her grief. Apparently Joseph is gone, passed away or whatever. And he does not want to leave his beautiful mother alone. Who does he then assign to take care of her? John. In my mind, it's a perfect symmetry that even in, that it would, it would make perfect sense to me that if that was John, 
who even in a pre-mortal life was responsible for this, that he would then get to this life and that he would have a special connection with this beautiful virgin, this mother of the Savior, and then be drawn heart-wise to want to take care of her. Because you almost would have expected it would have been Peter or, or James' his brother. But he's going to give this responsibility to this man. So that's, that's Kevin's speculation. Okay. All right. So in the time that we have remaining, because I, this is, I want to really kind of finish on this note. He's going to see this tree. And it was like, uh, it's beautiful. It's going to grow. Now, the reason why it is that I believe that you study this particular vision and you take Alma 32 and you plop it up next to it is that it's, it's the continuation in some ways of the analogy and Alma's, because Alma's going to take up this uh, this thing six, almost 600 years later and finish the analogy. Because if we're going to go here, let's go to Alma 32, 37. And he's going to talk about this, the word that gets planted in our heart. And it starts to grow. And it worketh within us. And it takes us from desiring to believing. And then what are we going to see? Well, look at what Alman runs with. He says, uh, you must lay aside your bed. Let's say uh, you're going to, 36, plant the seed that you might experiment to know if the seed was good. What does the seed grow into? Look at this. Verse 37. Behold as the tree beginneth to grow, you will say, let us nourish it with great care that it may get root, that it may grow up, it will bring forth unto fruit unto us. Now if you nourish it, it will get root. It will grow, bring forth fruit. If you neglect it, take no thought. It won't get root. Uh, and thus, 40. If you not nourish the word, looking forward with an eye of faith, you can never pluck of the fruit of tree of life. But if you nourish the word, if you desired, if you believed, uh, nourish the tree as it beginneth to grow by your faith, with great diligence and with patience, looking forward to the truth thereof, it will take root. And behold, it shall be this seed that was planted as a result of your desires as a result, and nourished by your belief. It shall be a tree springing up into everlasting life because of your diligence and your faith. And you shall pluck the fruit thereof, which is most precious, which is sweet above all that is sweet, which is white above all that is white, and pure above all that is pure. And you shall feast on, on this fruit until you are filled. That is an incredible analogy. What he's saying to you is that sometimes we see the tree of life analogy as this is where we're going. That through our, through our, uh, our desire and our diligence and our 
faith that we're going to actually make it to eternal life, that there's like a tree of life sitting in the middle of the celestial kingdom, and there probably is. But what Alma is doing is making this incredibly personal to us. He's going to say to us that this journey is not just out there to find a tree of life. This journey is where? In us. Our journey is to our heart. And where does he intend that the tree of life will live and grow and be nurtured? In us. In our own heart. Yeah. I'd just like to talk for a minute about how, what a true principle this is. Because, you know, the first thing that has to happen is that we have to prepare the soil. Right? And if we're preparing it this way, that's wonderful. But when we talk about desire, and you've got to want it, the, the other side of it is, is that if for whatever reason you approach it with suspicion, yeah. then there's another seed that can be planted. And when that seed is planted, then it can grow into bitter fruit. Yeah. Because if you got a wanna, then what you're going to be doing is looking for all the other answers that are out there. And, and pretty soon, you don't believe anymore. Yeah. Your soil wasn't prepared the right way, and you, you didn't want to believe. Well, the Savior tells us that the enemy can come in at night and plant tares. And those tares can actually, in, in fertile soil, can actually choke out that as well. I mean, that the analogy goes a, a lot of places. But, it, but I need you to see that the battle is inside us. The growth is inside us. The tree of life, while it is also a destination out there... It is also a destination inside the temple of our heart. That it was meant to be that way. That this, this pattern of uh, desiring and believing is what prepares us. So when we're going to come back to how do we know? And are we prepared? Well, I think sometimes that initial faith is I'm going to believe on the testimony of a missionary or on my parents or somebody around me, or something. And I think that, that gets us wonderfully down the road. But you know what? He intends that there comes a point that our, our preparation is such that the tree of life begins to grow. And, and, and you get this analogy of, of uh, it's not just planted as a full mature tree. You know, we're going to transplant this tree of life and put it in your heart, and it's fully grown, and you'll have fruit in about three weeks. You get this, this sense of time that it's going to take, that it's planted in us, we don't cast it out, we nourish it, that our belief isn't as strong as it will be later on, and then it grows. And then, and by the way, as it starts to grow up, sometimes you don't know, think about the times you have planted, and you don't know if that is going to work, right? And you keep watching the soil, and you watch the soil, and then what happens? You get a sign, and the sign is... Oh, there's a sprout. It's there. And now there's another sprout. You get these signs that says, you know what? I think this tree is really going to happen. And then it gets bigger and you go, and then it gets to be a tree and you go, I wonder if we'll have fruit. I mean, it's a nice tree and all, but we did it for the fruit. And do we get the fruit? And then you're watching the tree and you're looking for signs. And it's like, oh, there's blossoms. That's a good sign. 
And you're watching it, and then you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and then you go out one day, and there's like a little, think about an apple tree or something like that, and you see just a little bit, and you go, I got a sign, what, there's a tree, there's a, there's fruit, really? Yeah, I don't know how big it's going to be, or how many of them, but you get these little signs that say, yeah, it's there. And then pretty soon, you just don't have any doubt, because, why? Because you look out, and it's like there's this tree full of fruit, Well, I think that's us. I think as we sit here today, all of us are in different places with our trees inside us. And for some of us, that that we may have just this burgeoning tree of life in our heart and it's just bent over with fruit and a lifetime of experiences and knowledge and testimonies. I think for others in here, we have kind of a withering tree and we're hoping that it makes it through the winter. (laughs) And doesn't like fall over the first gust of wind that comes along. And we're trying to nourish it. And maybe we nourish it and it doesn't seem to be showing up very much. But we keep trying. And we keep allowing it to move. I think that's how this works. And he meant it to be a a gradual, slow process. So let me finish again with words that I've quoted before. This is from Joseph F. Smith. Joseph F. Smith used to talk about the importance of the education of our desires. And when he gave this talk, talking about the education of our desires, he said that the education of our desires is very much like planting. And he said the Lord, it's like nature. Nature takes its time, it does it its way, and we have to be patient while it grows. Well, I believe this patience we're talking about is the tree of life growing in our heart. If we will nourish it and ponderize and allow that and so that we feed it on a regular basis, it will grow into the tree that it's supposed to be. And I think that's really the message far beyond. And certainly on the ninth when we get back, we'll actually walk through uh, the, the vision that Nephi saw. And it's a pretty expansive vision. But just but before we begin this journey, I just want you to take this next couple of weeks. Think about the tree inside you. Think about where it is in its growing process. Think about, has it been blighted by an early frost? Has it, is it struggling a little bit? Does the ground need to be refertilized just a little bit? Does it need some extra help? Maybe something needs to be grafted in. I pray that we can do that and nourish the tree that is supposed to be there for us. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Sure.